I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. At The Resident, all rooms are designed to combine pure comfort with luxurious British style and design. Whether you're escaping to London for a romantic break or visiting the city with friends and family, there's no better place to stay in the heart of the neighbourhood. Without The Resident, you might not get to London. And without The Resident, we wouldn't be here on Holyrood Sources. Holyrood Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident. The podcast starts now. No. Are you reconsidering your decision to not to suspend uh, Nicholas Sturgeon? No, I've shown consistency throughout this process. People are released without charge. There's no reason to suspend them. I've made that clear. It's the way I've treated other parliamentarians, for example, and that's the way I'll continue. I know why the opposition got rid of Nicholas Sturgeon out of here, because, of course, he's thrashed about every single election, so I'm hardly surprised at that. Hello and welcome to the Hollywood Sources podcast. I'm Callum McDonald. We are recording on Monday the 12th of June. Thanks very much for being with us. If you're brand new, welcome. And make sure you press follow and you can stick around and stick with us for the best analysis of Scottish politics. With, of course, Jeff Aberdeen, former Chief of Staff to the First Minister, Alex Salmond. Hello, Jeff. Hello. And Andy McKeever's here as well, who was Director of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. Andy, hello. Hello, hello. And Jeff, I feel like you should introduce our guest this week. Actually, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm more than happy to. Um, somebody that uh, gave me great uh, encouragement at the start of my career, and then a lot of criticism throughout <laughs> my career. And uh, but all, all all in all, it was a rewarding experience. I'll give him that before I give him a hard time on the questions. <laughs> uh, welcome to the former first minister, Alex Salmon. <laughs> Uh, well, the, the, the criticism, Jeff, was about the, uh, it was a replacement for self-improvement, uh, and the, the encouragement seems to have uh, worked okay, so I wouldn't complain too much. You certainly not dampened the self-confidence, Alex. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's absolutely true. Uh, <laughs> Let's not make this a ganging up on me. I should say to Callum and Andy that Jeff was a very young man. Uh, when he came to to work for me as uh, as my chief of staff, uh, uh, and uh, if he behaves himself for this podcast, I won't reveal what his nickname was. Oh, <laughs> okay, interesting. I didn't realise there had been a nickname, Jeff. No, I didn't realise I had one, so I'm interested to know. Uh, Alec, I was just thinking, actually, I was saying to Andy before we started, the first time I ever interviewed you was by the light of several iPhones. 
outside the Scottish Parliament on the day that the White Paper on Independence was published in 2013 for, stu- for the student radio station at Edinburgh. Yes, Green. I never liked that interview. Uh, <laughs> no, that, that was the highlight. That, that was the highlight of the day, Callum. I, I, I remember. Well, I, thank you. I remember it well. That was November 2013. That's correct. Yeah. No, it's out of my mind. Long. Absolutely, definitely. well it's great to have you here thank you very much thank you for being with us Uh, it's lots to talk about over the course of the next little while Uh, and i think we obviously have to start with the the news of the moment don't we that nicola sturgeon was arrested uh, over the weekend on sunday um she has been uh, questioned by police for many hours it would seem uh, and she was uh, released without charge it's worth saying as well at this point i will just read what nicola sturgeon said after she uh, was released without charge she said to find myself in the situation i did when i'm certain i've committed no offense is both a shock and deeply distressing She said she'd return to the Scottish Parliament soon. She insisted she would, quote, never do anything to harm either the SNP or the country. She said, obviously, given the nature of this process, I cannot go into detail. However, I do wish to say this, and to do so in the strongest possible terms. Innocence is not just a presumption I am entitled to in law. I know beyond doubt that I am, in fact, innocent of any wrongdoing. Uh, that was Nicola Sturgeon's quite punchy statement after she was uh, released. Of course, for obvious reasons, there's only so much we can say and there's quite a lot we can't say, but we can discuss the implications of this in terms of Scottish politics and for the SNP and indeed for Scotland. Uh, Jeff, do you want to go first on this? I mean, it's, it was kind of rumoured for weeks and weeks and weeks that it was going to happen. And there we have Nicola Sturgeon arrested. Yeah, I mean, the... I th- you're right. I mean, it was rumoured for some time that it was likely that she'd be uh, arrested and, uh, and given the same treatment, so to speak, as uh, Peter Murrell and indeed Colin Beattie, uh, the former SNP treasurer. But when it happens, it's still quite a thing. Um, and uh, it was quite a moment yesterday. I think given that it has been priced in from those of us in the political bubble for some time, perhaps the, the, the biggest surprise is out there in the general public. For us... Uh, political geeks, I suppose, that the, the most interesting thing is what does this actually mean for the SNP? And I've said a time and time again on this podcast that I've felt that Humza really needed to distance himself uh, from what went before. Not just to say, uh, by any means, in, in a malicious sense, by the way, about uh, his predecessor, but to really establish himself as his own man uh, and direct the country with a bit of conviction on the policy areas that he wants to be known for. But sadly, just preceding uh, 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 Nicola Sturgeon's arrest or the announcement of the arrest, he, he did an interview which yet again he paid a lot of tribute to uh, Nicola Sturgeon, which is fair play and understandable. He, he holds her in high regard. But yet again, the perception of the viewer is very much that, you know, she's his person, so to speak. And, and, and politics is a brutal game. You only get one shot. Uh, most likely at being first minister. Perhaps our our guests might disagree with that, who knows. But I do think he needs to distance himself. He needs to separate himself uh, and be his own person and and lead an administration with real conviction. And so far, he's been caught up reacting to events and not leading events. And I do wonder if he needs to focus on that going forward. Mm. Alec, I want to come to you next on this. Um, How did you react when you heard that Nicola Sturgeon had been arrested? Well, it, it, two things. Well, one is that everybody always says there's a limit to how much we can say about these things, and then go ahead and say it. You know, I mean, it's a, a characteristic. But I'll just stick to the. There's actually very little you can properly say about these things. 
In terms of my reaction, which is uh, a perfectly legitimate question, uh, well, you know, I, I keep getting these messages uh, from people who assume that you know I'd be cracking open the the champagne bottles at the at the state of the SNP, and I, of course that's not my reaction at all. Never has been in the, over the last few months because you know I, I spent uh, well <laughs> the best part of my life, but certainly twenty years. Uh, building up the SNP to replace the Labour Party as the, the dominant force in Scottish politics. So, so it, it doesn't actually fill me with joy to see uh, to see the SNP in such uh, disrepair. I mean, the SNP has changed a great deal, uh, and that's one of its problems just now. I mean, for the, the 20 years I led it, even when it became incredibly successful, it was basically a volunteer party, and it had all the inherent decency of a volunteer party. I mean, in other words, there was very few careerists in the SNP because, uh, you know, there was a long period of time where uh, there was no career options in the party. Uh, so you could virtually count on the fact that every single person uh, was in it because they believed in Scottish independence, so they, they wanted to further Scottish interests. And over recent years, that hasn't been the case, and that... Uh, uh, that rot has set in at the very centre of the party. So I, I don't take any joy from its current uh, trials and tribulations. On the, on the contrary, it's a, a great deal of sadness. Mm, sadness, disappointment, frustration. What other words do you, do you, when you're viewing what is happening here to the party that you say you spent so much time in, with people that you worked very closely with, and in fact sort of cultivated in many ways, um, how, how does that feel to you? Does it feel like it's some sort of personal attack? Or disappointment? No, I, what it feels like uh, and what I concentrate my energies on is how do you insulate the cause of independence from the, the trials and tribulations of a single political party? How do you stop? I mean, you can't stop this damaging the SNP. I'm afraid that's happened. I mean, Jeff is right. If Hamza takes the right action and is assertive about it, much, much more than he has been to date. I mean, you, you've got an absolute <laughs> essential clear the decks moment. Uh, you know, you, you have to do that. You have to insert a departure between what has gone before and what you're going to do as a new First Minister. And you can do that in a whole range of ways. You can do it in terms of personnel. You can do it in terms of policy. Above all, you have to do it in terms of strategy. Uh, and you might reassert some democracy into the SNP while you're at it. That would be, it was always a helpful, uh, <laughs> it was also, always a, a helpful restraint on the arrogance of leadership that the SNP was an inherently democratic party. It ceased to be a democratic party in the, in the sense that the membership now has has no control over policy or strategy, not even as a restraining influence. And so he has to do these things, and he has to do them quickly. But my main preoccupation is how do you preserve and protect the cause of independence? Now, thus far, on opinion polls, like the one uh, released today, uh, that uh, that show that the cause of independence is at fifty two point five percent. I'm never sure how posters managed to get the point five percent in, but nonetheless, it's it's right up there. It's over fifty percent. That's the second poll in two or three weeks to show that. So at the very least, independence is still riding pretty high in historic terms. But the SNP is heading into the the thirties, uh, and what Hamza's Yusuf has to realise that you know he's on the. He's on the event horizon at the present moment. Uh, and if he, he doesn't take rapid, substantial and assertive action, he might well disappear into the black hole. Not him personally, but the, the SNP as the, as the major political party of Scotland. Mm. Andy, it's interesting what Alex saying there that, you know, the damage, uh, there has been damage done to, to the SNP. It's, all, it's already kind of happened. 
Well, we that I mean that bit we know. Um, there's a lot that we don't know, but we know that the SNP's poll rating is not where it was before. They're consistently seven, eight, maybe even nine points down on where they have been, not just in opinion polls, but where they also have been at elections. I mean, 2019, I think, was 45%. They're sitting on 38-ish in most polls. Um, so the SNP vote is down. Um, we, uh, I think it's fair to presume that the police investigation has a role to play in that. I think we can be specific about exactly what that role is because there are also policy issues. The SNP vote was going down, for example, during gender recognition and the other things that have been going on as well. So there are there are delivery problems, gender recognition, DRS, ferries, you know, there are, there are obviously a lot of uh, problems that Hamza Youssef has inherited. But we do know the SNP vote is falling. But the fascinating thing that is going on is what Alex identified there, which is that the independence vote is pretty strong. Um, and uh, I think it would take... Uh, a little bit of retrospective change from a lot of pollsters and commentators who did not predict that would happen at the time this was all kicking off. I think people presumed that as well as the SNP vote going down, the same thing would happen with the independence vote, and it hasn't. It has stayed pretty firm. Uh, Alex cited a poll uh, where, yes, was leading, and there's been a couple of those, I think, in the last week. Most of the polls still have yes at sort of an average of about 47, 48, 49%. But that's still high. It's obviously still higher than it was uh, in 2014. And uh, and so many of them are voting Labour. I mean, that's it. And we heard that from John Curtis as well a few weeks ago on the podcast, is that there is now the very clear phenomenon of yes voters who have transferred to Labour. And all of that, I suppose, if you look in the long term, I think the really interesting thing about all of that... um, and I, I did my I did a Herald article on this a few weeks ago because I, I started to ponder really over the last few weeks. There's always been this presumption in the nationalist movement, or I should say, there's always been this presumption in the SNP that the SNP must be strong and united and large in order to deliver independence. And I'm really not so sure that's true anymore, actually. Uh, I actually wonder if the reverse is true, in that uh, more parties are required supporting independence in order to actually deliver it. I'm not sure the SNP on its own can ever achieve the sort of heights it had before and effectively pull Scotland towards independence by itself. I think now independence is probably dependent on a stronger coalition of supporters and of parties to get it there. And time will tell, of course. We'll see where the SNP poll rating goes. We'll see how the party performs in the next couple of elections. But that is the more interesting... You know, the, this this will come and go. What The news stories will come and go, but the long-term trend is what will really determine the future of the party and of the independence movement in general. Yeah. Interesting, some big themes to get into, actually, there. Just a couple more on, on the events of the last couple of days, if I may. Um, Alec, do you think that the bar for suspending people from the SNP is too low? And by that, I am guessing at, should Nicola Sturgeon be suspended at this point? Well, I'm not going to uh, <clears throat> interfere in the disciplinary processes of another party. So that, I mean, I'm afraid Hamza is going to have to... Uh, is going to have to solve that one for himself. Uh, I mean, interestingly, there'd be no point in me giving him advice because he, he certainly wouldn't take it. So, uh, <laughs> the uh, but I mean, I know what I would do, and uh, I know what Nicola Sturgeon would have done uh, if, with Nicola Sturgeon if uh, they had uh, been other people in other circumstances. But uh, you know, Hamza's just going to. Have to work. You're suggesting you, you would have, you would have no. I'm not, suggest, I'm not suggesting anything of the sort. I, I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting what Nicholas Sturgeon would have suspended Nicholas Sturgeon under these circumstances. No question about that. But look, what uh, 
what Hamza decides to do with the internal discipline of the, another political party and not the one I lead is a matter for Hamza. Alec, you just said something interesting there. That <clears throat> you said, well, you know, Hamza Yusuf is not going to take my advice, <coughs> but yet you need him to take your advice if you're to advance your case for the next general election. You need him to listen to you. And I mean, perhaps you can outline your, your plan that's been well publicised in the last week or so, but reflect on that. How are you going to convince the SNP, if you've accepted yourself, that he isn't going to listen to you? How are you going to get him to turn... Well, you're very good, Jeff. Exactly why I'm not going to give him uh, advice on the internal machinations of the Scottish National Party is because the only advice I really want to give him uh, is in terms of how to turn the political situation around for independence. Uh, and that depends... Uh, well, because the logic, I think, is so overwhelming, uh, I'm hoping it will gather a momentum of its own. Uh, and the particular momentum, the reason I think it will gather momentum, is because all of the, the narrative at the present moment, and that narrative will become established. And and if not, I mean, I'm talking about within the next, certainly weeks, if not months, it's going to become so well established that it will take a, a huge event to shake it. And that is the narrative is that the SNP are going to lose 20 seats to the Labour Party in next year's election. Uh, and you, know, you have to do something extraordinarily substantial to shake that narrative if you want to save these 20 seats. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I want to save these 20 seats because I think that would be regarded as uh, a setback of these proportions for the leading independence party would be regarded as a, a sign that, uh, that Scotland had moved back substantially politically. And I, I think it would be better to have... Uh, to have uh, people who believe in Scottish independence there uh, rather than the than, than Labour MPs. So I'm uh, I'm kind of interested in saving the, the skins of 20 SNP MPs. And I, I'm hoping that there'll be a... Well, I, I met a couple at the airport last week uh, at London City, and uh, they seem very interested in the idea of... Uh, of saving their uh, saving their skins. That's because they've got a Labour candidate right behind them. Uh, if you are, had a Tory candidate behind you, and that applies not, not to too many, probably about half a dozen uh, SNP MPs, then perhaps you'd be a bit more relaxed in personal terms. But if you've got a Labour candidate behind you, then you are looking for a way uh, of uh, saving your seat or alternatively polishing up your CV. So I'm hoping that they, you know, Dr Johnson's remark, you know, for... If somebody's going to be hanged in two weeks, it concentrates the mind wonderfully. It's not two weeks for the hanging, but it's a, a year should still concentrate the political mind. And if we can spell out the political logic and demonstrate, as a, a poll uh, released on Wednesday will demonstrate, that uh, there is a public support for the idea uh, that uh, a collection of parties standing under a Scotland United for Independence banner looking for a mandate to negotiate independence, a majority of Scots would think that would be such a mandate. So the, the, the appeal has a great logic to it. It's a logic for three reasons. One, it's something dramatically different. It'll take the attention away from both of the, MP, the SNP's internal troubles and their policy troubles that Andy referred to. Uh, secondly, uh, that it'll downgrade the party political element when you know the the financial shenanigans are going to overhang the SNP for some time to come. I think we can safely predict that this is not going to be over by Christmas. And thirdly, it'll be something new and dynamic, which actually motivates independent supporters. You know, the roughly fifty percent of people who believe in it that there might be something worth voting for at next year's general election. So, for all of the above reasons, there's a compelling logic. So I'm going to depend on the, 
the logic and the survival instincts of SNP MPs to at least have a, a broad canvas of this idea uh, in terms of the SNP's internal discussions that are taking place over the over the next weeks. Let me let me take that up then, Alec. I mean, I uh, there are there are a lot of people in the country who uh, are broadly in I think the same sort of boat as I am in. I'm not a very nationalistic person either way. I'm perfectly content to be Scottish and I'm content to be British. I'm not actually that bothered. It's not what motivates me hugely. Um, I voted no because I thought it would be too financially risky for my family for me to vote yes. And I haven't changed my mind. So there's nothing that pulls me to the UK. I'm not. I'm just not that fussed. I could very comfortably vote yes if I thought it was worth it for me. And I think a lot of people think the same way. Um, but my view would be that that sort of economic case is further away now than it was eight and a half years ago. So putting processes in place and thinking about how people can come together to create the movement and all that sort of stuff is all good and well. What is the pitch, though, to somebody like me that gets me over the line and says, actually, this is worthwhile for my children. I should definitely be doing this. This makes sense. Because at the moment, to me... It just it doesn't it still doesn't make sense. So what is the actual narrative that says this is where we need to go, not to get to fifty percent plus one, but to get to fifty five percent, to get to sixty percent, to get to the point where there isn't really any doubt about the fact that this is going to happen. Well, it's interesting you should say it, and uh, I've got some more than a degree of sympathy with your dilemma since the, the the case hasn't really been refreshed or articulated since two thousand and fourteen. And yet the, the circumstances, the economic case for independence is uh, even more compelling than it was then. And, and the reason for that, of course, is in the substantial comparative advantage that Scotland would gain uh, from a membership of the, the single market. I mean, note that I didn't say the European Union, because in, the European Union may be desirable in political terms. Uh, I would probably argue it was. But what really matters in economic terms is membership of the single market. And membership of the single market, if it can be achieved, and I think there is a way to achieve it realistically within a quite a defined timescale, in a way there isn't for full membership of the European Union, incidentally, it'll take at least five years. But membership of the single market is a much, much narrower timescale, Andy. And it would give Scotland, in addition to its other natural and human assets, a very substantial comparative advantage. I mean, one of the reasons, of course... And through EFTA, Alec, you mean? Are you talking about through EFTA? Yes, I mean, you know, EFTA membership itself yeah. and inheritance of EFTA's trade treaties is a matter of weeks. It can take between EFTA meetings. Uh, but then you have to get into the single market via the European Commission. But again, you know, that's a commission-led process. Nothing like as difficult as entered European Union. But the example I was going to give you, uh, Andy, is the Republic of Ireland at the present moment. I mean, <laughs> heading towards a 20 billion euro surplus. Uh, now, there are a number of reasons economically, which I'll go into for the reasons of Ireland's, uh, Ireland's riches at the present moment, but one of them is the comparative advantage and boost that it's received from Brexit, which is why the, the public uh, is full of new communications being opened up and direct trade links between the Northern Ireland and the, uh, between Ireland rather than the single market. So there's a working example and a a very, very compelling example of of, uh, of uh, why there would be an economic advantage which wasn't there to the same extent in 2014. And unfortunately, that case hasn't been well articulated. Uh, but it can be articulated. It's not too difficult a job to articulate it. But, uh, you know, that's uh, 
And one other thing we should learn, of course, from the referendum campaign, that it wasn't till, you know, that I was aware that I was about to be interviewed by Callum uh, outside the Scots Parliament that uh, the, <laughs> the work had to be done to build the prospectus for independence. You know, people tend not to to put the degree of energy required into building these prospectuses and to advocating them in a in a vacuum. I mean, I was, if, unless you're working towards a referendum or an election, it tends not to happen. Uh, and, uh, you know, the SNP over the last uh, eight years or nine years has given every indication of being preoccupied with matters of the day, uh, certainly too preoccupied to, to build a to build a convincing new prospectus and new case for independence. I mean, there have been one or two decent bits of work, but nothing like the comprehensive programme which was assembled for the 2014 referendum. Imperfect, no doubt I know what. Jeff's desperate to come in, but before, just before, just a very quick one before Jeff comes in, because I know he's about to come in. Ireland, mm-hmm. though, right? I'm looking at a situation where there are quite significant ideological and philosophical differences with Irish, Irish politics and Scottish politics. They are an unashamedly extremely pro-enterprise entrepreneurial country over the Irish Sea. I think we've lost that. I don't think we are that anymore. They are not afraid to undercut the UK to win business. We complain about being undercut. We're looking to increase taxes. They are not. I think there's a significant difference here between the way that Ireland go about their politics and their business and the way that we do at the moment. Maybe we would change with independence. Maybe we would change the way we looked at these things. But I would just highlight that to me, those two countries look quite different. Well, I, I, I'll just say that I, I was never uh, against building a comparative advantage uh, uh, for business uh, in any way I could as First Minister, and the SNP were quite comfortable with that uh, policy uh, at the time. Uh, it doesn't have to be done through taxation, of course, although taxation is one way to do it. You can you can build it in terms of the facilities, the resources, the communications that are available to your business. But particularly right now, You'd want to do it in terms of the ease and facility of trade with a, a market of 500 million people. Alec, just to touch on this, you put forward a very strong case for this proposition at the next uh, election. But as you just mentioned, and I was there alongside you and others, including Nicola Sturgeon, uh, John Swinney and all the rest of it, doing a hell of a lot of work on that white paper that we presented that you did the interview with Callum outside Holyrood. <laughs> How does this work in practice? Seriously, because if we're a year away, we, we expect, roundabout, give or take, from a general election, and you're asking people to unify around an independence uh, candidate, therefore, by definition, the questions that will come through the normal political knockabout will be on that perspective for independence. Well, so how is that taken forward in terms of... Because, because just to finish this point, this election will be largely defined on getting rid of the Tories, yes or no, or the, how are we going to drill the cost of living crisis and the economy? And then this Scotland cabal come in and say, do you know what, let's talk about EFTA. Let's talk about all these various other things. Are we really seriously going to be able to convince the electorate at large to go that? Or do you do you endanger diminishing, uh, not adding to your number? Well, I, I think we'll certainly add to the number. But I mean, that, that would be the test that, that you know, obviously, uh, that, that, as I've been mentioning, we've been testing this... Uh, as you can in terms of uh, of polling information, what public reaction to it would be. Uh, but, I mean, it, it's based on the uh, assumption that we don't have uh, Andy over the line as far as being an independent supporter is concerned, but, you know, that half the population is over the line at the present moment, or roughly half. 
Uh, and frankly, to, to win an election, you, you know, you, would, you wouldn't need 50 percent. I mean, to, to sweep the boards in a first-past-the-post election, you know, somewhere in the, the mid-40s will do absolutely fine. Thank you very much. Uh, but the, the, you're not trying to, to, to get the... I mean, it would be a great mistake in such a coalition, such a, a yes alliance, uh, to try and get the variety of parties in that alliance to agree on everything. In fact, I, I go back to an earlier point that uh, that Andy made that, that there's some, in some ways, there's a great strength in diversity. The, the point of, of that they would have to unify on would be paragraph one and eight in the manifesto, which says we are seeking a popular mandate to negotiate independence for Scotland. After that, it's no bad thing if there's a, a variety of perspectives of what the independence could amount to, because not everybody who believes in independence agrees uh, on the policy programme. And it's sometimes a bad uh, Look, there, was, there are ways to deal with this. You know, when the SNP rose to become the dominant party of Scotland, I pitched the SNP in the, the mainstream of the Scottish political tradition. You know, I, I didn't go about uh, campaigning for self-identification or, or I didn't go out my way to pick fights with substantial sections of the Scottish community. I mean, obviously, there were issues which were seen to be controversial that I thought had such a, a, a moral base on, on equality, like equal marriage, uh, that I was prepared to take the risk but uh, because I thought it was the right thing to do. But by and large... Uh, when you are a national party, you have an obligation to try and avoid alienating significant sections of the community. Uh, now, the SNP, for you know their own reasons, have, have embarked. Uh, you know, partly that's their alliance with the Greens, of course, but but uh, they've embarked on a, a number of controversial policy stances. What I'm saying is, if you want, for example, a strong feminist. Who believes passionately in women's rights and believes that self-identification endangers women's rights, it might be handy, you know, for them to know that not everybody in the independence movement is signed up to self-ID. Uh, so there is an argument that as long as you can get unity around what represents a mandate and what you're calling for essentially in the in the election, Jeff, that then there is no hardship and showing a spread of views, not just on social issues like self-identification, but on economic issues as well. Uh, you know, and you have to get into the mentality of moving away from the era which saw one single party having the preserve of the independence case to an era where several parties are going to be advocating independence and quite legitimately disagree about the direction that an independent Scotland could, should take. Some people will find that quite attractive because it will get across the argument that the first thing that will happen in the, when the independent state is uh, established is that there'll be an election to decide who the government shall be and which policy programme it shall follow. I see the point, but we, we've discussed, and I'm sure you'll agree, there has been a distinct lack of message discipline uh, around Scottish politics of late. And I just think in practice, if you take this forward at a general election... Uh, are, you know, the opponents of this uh, independent supporting uh, uh, movement uh, and her, her Maj His Majesty's press, I should say now, will do their damnedest to try and pick holes in variances and opinions. You might say it's a strength, but as we both know, in the heat of a campaign, they can be picked out as weaknesses. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's quite a challenging yeah. ask in a year to turn... Well, less so in a general, UK general election campaign. You know, when the, the, the big yeah. UK guns will be turned on each other, 
uh, in terms of that. A referendum campaign, yeah. yeah, you've got a point. Although, you know, to be fair, I mean, we did manage to do that in the in the referendum to a great extent. I mean, if you think that, you know, Dennis Canavan was chair of the, of the Yes campaign, and I think it would have been well understood that uh, although Dennis did his best to be diplomatic <laughs> in terms of the campaign, that, that Dennis's <laughs> views on republicanism uh, uh, and on uh, an, an independent Scottish currency, and probably to a certain extent at least on the European Union, it would be a, a divergent from mine at that stage. I mean, some of my views have graduated since then, incidentally, but nonetheless, but nonetheless, we managed to, uh, you know, have a bit of goodwill even in the heat of a referendum campaign. Because I, I don't think that disunity in the referendum campaign was a serious problem. I, I think our problems really lay elsewhere. On the contrary, it was when we embraced the. The full, uh, uh, fantastic variety of uh, of grassroots uh, extravaganzas that the campaign actually really got some momentum in the in the summer of twenty fourteen. But in any case, Jeff, I think you'd have a it'd be a stronger point for a referendum campaign than it is for a UK general election campaign. And of course, the the sort of uh, argument I'm putting forward wouldn't be as necessary in a Scottish election campaign. You know, because the the list vote uh, allows uh, a diversity of candidates to go forward, uh, building a you know a list uh, majority through a, a variety of parties. But first past the post, as we all know, is a very very heavy taskmaster. Uh, and uh, if you want to win first past the post, and uh, you want and want to maximise the independence vote, it would be preferable to have one independence candidates in each constituency. And, you know, I, I was debating this with Jim Fairley and uh, the, the BBC a couple of weeks ago uh, in the uh, debate night programme. Uh, and uh, it came, I mean, Jim was a very good-natured uh, guy t towards this, uh, you know, he's not dogmatic, let's put it that way, uh, towards this idea. But he was genuinely saying, well, we couldn't do that because we'd lose the SNP brand. Now, it might be the case that a wee bit of a diminution of that brand might be a good idea at the present moment because you can structure this so you don't do that. I mean, you can structure it so it's SNP, Scotland United for Independence, ALAPA, Scotland United for Independence, Green Party, Scotland United for Independence, Scottish Socialist Party, Scotland United for Independence, you know, some attractive independent candidate, United for Independence. And the one last thing I'd say about this, there is quite a, I mean, it's not an exact proxy, but you'll be aware of it. And that, that's 1993 in Quebec, uh, where the Bloc Québécois emerged from the Canadian Conservatives, uh, a couple of defecting Liberals, uh, and uh, there was a, a reasonably unpopular party Québécois running the, the, the provincial government at the time. Uh, and the Bloc Québécois emerged and swept the boards at a federal election in a, in a matter of months uh, on a very, very narrow platform of advancing uh, Quebec's interests. Now, it's a proxy in the sense mm. uh, that they managed to transfer all of the, the allegiances from the PQ at provincial level, and they added to that uh, some other uh, interests at uh, federal level. It's, it's just an interesting example of how this sort of thing could be done. So if you like, I, I think a, a bloc écossais, it might work quite well. <laughs> are, you, are you doing everything in your power there, Alex, to avoid using the phrase de facto referendum? Well, I don't think the fact is a pretty good like phrase because it, it does... It does it, it does tend to suggest it's a once-and-for-all process. And democracy mm. is never a once-and-for-all process. Uh, 
I mean, look, the, the SNP campaigned basically from its inception uh, until 1999 uh, on the basis that uh, the route to independence was winning a majority of seats at Westminster. Uh, and to be fair to the SNP, that position was by and large accepted by every UK Prime Minister from Harold Wilson. It was certainly accepted by Margaret Thatcher, implied in her memoirs and clearly stated in elsewhere in personal conversation with me. Now, of course, it's true that Margaret Thatcher didn't anticipate that the SNP were about to win a majority of seats at that time. <laughs> and she made a different view when the eventuality arose. But the point I'm making, it was generally accepted that the way to independence before 1999 it was for the SNP to win a majority or independence candidates, let's put it that way, to win a majority of seats in a, from Scotland in the Westminster election. And that was accepted by all sides. It was only after the advent of the Parliament, it was generally accepted by most people up until relatively recently that the way to independence was to gain a majority in the proportional Scottish Parliament and then to hold a, a referendum. Now, that referendum route has been blocked. It has been stymied. It's not going to be unstymied any time soon. Therefore, you have to find a new democratic route. Well, I don't like the phrase de facto referendum, is it implies that somehow you would have a once-and-for-all test in a UK general election. When you're, what you're actually doing is reverting to the, the previous policy, which was to say any electoral test where a party clearly states that it's looking for a mandate for Scottish independence is a democratically assertive and legitimate way to decide the independence issue. Callum, before yeah, you move on. on, I know we want to get crack on. Just one, one thing, more of a personal thing. I was actually playing golf at Hazelhead Golf. Very well, I heard. Council run. Rumours reach Council run and <laughs> playing very well, getting away with one, actually, with my child only being two and a half weeks old. So He's always I'm been quite good at spin, hasn't he, Alec? That's one of the... Top spin. Back spin. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, that'd be better. friend of mine, long-term SNP supporter, and he said, Jeff, you know, I can't get my head round... Alex Sam, in the sense that I've followed him for the, the SNP. He grew the SNP, played a massive role in building it up over all those years. And I just can't get my head around this Alipa thing. And in a sense, that is actually reflects my position. As you know, I've never been particularly convinced uh, about Alipa. But I worked alongside you and others building up the SNP for those 10 years. And I just can't... I watch television and I just can't get it through my head that you are not representing the SNP. And clearly, Alipa has not had the, the gains or inroads that you would have hoped for, uh, at neither the local election or the Scottish election beforehand. So what does the future hold for Alipa, uh, assuming you don't get this independence uh, initiative at the next general election? And the reason I ask is, surely there is a need more than ever to try and unite the independence uh, movement uh, as more of a convention, as you've been calling for, as opposed to as a political party that has limited prospects? Well, the, the two things aren't mutually exclusive, Jeff. The, uh, the argument we've been putting forward about the independence movement is that it should be the heart of a convention uh, and not be the property of a political party, uh, that the, the movement should speak to parties on an equal basis uh, as, as opposed to, to feeling hot to political parties. And, and I mean, it's well known that moves are afoot to establish that, to, to bring together these various strands. I mean, sometimes you look at the number of 
independence organizations and you, <laughs> you try to keep your head around the acronyms, you know. But uh, on the other hand, you know, having that independence uh, organizational infrastructure is a strength uh, if they are talking to each other and if each organization is doing what it's uh, uh, what its purpose is, uh, and our some organisations are think tanks like you know Commonweal, which is a, a great thing to have. You might not agree with every idea they come up with, but some of their ideas are very solid. Uh, some organisations like uh, All Under One Banner are activist organisations to to turn people out at, at rallies, and, and they fulfil a purpose. So as long as these organisations are have all got their uh, their pigeonhole and speaking to each other and coordinating, then you can see an independence infrastructure built out and I mean built up. And I mean, Andy made a point looking at other countries. I mean, uh, for better or worse, a very impressive independence infrastructure was built in uh, in Catalonia uh, in terms of of their pushing forward uh, their claim for sovereignty. And uh, you know that there was a lot of impressive things that that organisation did and. And as you see it emerging in Scotland, that, that's, that, that's a good thing in my, in my view. But political parties have a role as well. You ask what Alipa's, Alipa's target is the next Scottish elections. Uh, I believe Alipa will get 15% of the list vote. I believe they'll get 24 seats in the Scottish Parliament. I think it's entirely possible. And my main concern, actually, in terms of what is realisable politically, Jeff, is uh, you know, I mean, people think, oh, well, Alipa wants to rise as the SNP falls. Actually, you don't want the SNP to fall too much if you're still looking to see an independence majority in the parliament. I mean, it doesn't suit the purposes of Alipa to see the SNP supplanted, replaced, uh, and defeated by the by the Labour Party. Uh, you know, so I, I'd like to avoid that eventuality if if we can, and I can't do it as leadership of the SNP because I'm not a member. Uh, but I can certainly offer advice and offer a stimulation and put forward the arguments for independence, of course. And the last point I make to Jeff is there are, what, 8,000 people in Alipa now, which makes us the third largest political party in Scotland. Uh, my guess is without Alipa, these 8,000 or how many activists there are among them, and it's quite a high percentage, would be lost to the independence movement. They wouldn't be, they certainly wouldn't be supporting the SNP at the present moment because. The bulk of them have left the SNP for one reason or another, uh, and unless the SNP takes on a totally different direction from from what it's been doing, uh, I think it might take a bit of time to do that. Then that will remain the the situation. Of course, <clears throat> your your advice to Hamza, never mind mine, might prevail. <clears throat> he might well clear out uh, the people who need to be cleared out from SNP headquarters. He might embark on a a totally different policy direction. They might junk self-identification, uh, you know, <laughs> trying to trying to regulate 10% of fishing communities in the most disastrous, ham-fisted way. He might uh, concede that uh, if you're going to have a fight with Westminster, uh, you know, struggle with Westminster, it's probably better not to do it in a bottle scheme, uh, but do it on issues like self-determination, uh, or indeed an issue where you've got Scotland behind you. I mean. Uh, for example, 10 years ago, we had a struggle, a constitutional struggle with Westminster on the bedroom tax. Technically, the Westminster government, the Tory Liberal government, could have uh, taken us to court on the bedroom tax because we were interfering with housing benefit and some of the reserve functions. Uh, they didn't, of course, because about 99% of Scotland wanted us to junk the bedroom tax. Uh, and they didn't fancy their chances of rallying the 1% behind their bedroom tax policy. So, I mean, I, I don't mind, as you probably remember, picking fights at Westminster. 
But I like picking fights for Westminster where you've got Scotland behind you because you're not going to win any fights for Westminster if you divide Scotland first. Uh, so, you know, mm. things like that. Uh, it, Hamza may well take your advice. And, uh, and instead of being on the event horizon of extinction, he might uh, decide to uh, you know, be a certain leadership. But, uh, you know, the interview was mentioned earlier, the one with Laura Koonsberg. Uh, yeah. If I were the Kevin Pringle, our old colleague, <laughs> going into the hot seat this week, I, I think I would, however gently, because Kevin is a, an extremely gentle as well as an extremely intelligent man, uh, I think I'd try to get the First Minister in a quiet moment and play him back that interview and go through it step by step. Uh, and question what his intentions were in various aspects of that interview. And, of course, the overwhelming problem with that interview is it wasn't clear why he was doing it. it just, I mean, if it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't mm -hmm. out of that interview a central message. I mean, his, his objectives... What did he say, what did he say wrong? What, what well, was wrong well, about it? Many things. Uh, I think uh, the alliance with the Greens in the Scottish Parliament was worth its weight in gold. Uh, would be one uh, example. Uh, his objective was to get a legally binding referendum. He said that twice. Uh, but there is no such thing as a legally binding referendum in, in British Constitution. Uh, but more, more than just sort of pick holes, I mean, the problem is, mm. if you looked at that interview, the psychology behind it seemed to be, I'm going to survive this interview. You know, I, I'm going to get through this interview and I'm still going to be speaking sentences and being coherent and saying, you know, saying things and, and not going to collapse and sort of, you know, be reduced to a sort of crying lump of mush. Uh, but the objective of doing an interview in a, a major, you know, flagship BBC programme is not to survive it, but to make a point, to, to change a direction, to rally support, to reassure people that things are going to get better. Uh, and... I, I mean, maybe somebody saw in it what I didn't see, but I didn't see any sense that there was an objective behind doing that interview as opposed to just turning up to do it. Now, maybe that's the sort of thing that Kevin Pringle might help with. <laughs> I think it might be a good idea if he does. Should you say, Kevin Pringle's going in to be Director of Communications, isn't he? And he, as you say, worked with you guys Um Yes, and he's the best in the business. But, uh, you know, there's so much that can be done in the back room. Some of it has to be done in the front room. And there has to be a realisation of the extent of the problem. I mean, you know, the, the SNP as a political party has a, you know, is facing a potential, uh, I was going to say extinction event. Maybe that's a bit, uh, a bit uh, alarming. But, uh, you know, if you don't change course, <laughs> then... You know that is the sort of that's that's where it's heading because the trouble in politics, you know, momentum works two ways. It can work in your favour very substantially. It can also, you know, reverse momentum is equally compelling. And they have to shift the narrative. The narrative this now is that the SNP find it difficulty running a tap in the Scottish Parliament, is that embarked on confrontational issues with the Scottish population, which are causing significant damage to, to these pop to these groups in society but more so to the SNP's reputation uh, there is a real underlying feeling that key public services are not being run as they should be run uh, and that uh, there is also the general feeling I mean I don't wouldn't describe it as complacency because people must be concerned 
Uh, but the idea that this is somehow just kind of midterm blues now is going to settle itself if yeah. we don't do something about it. Now, hopefully, uh, you know, after a few weeks in the job, Hamza will uh, will find the uh, the uh, the. So you think it's you think it's savable, salvageable? It's not irreparably damaged by Nicola Sturgeon's leadership and the chaos. That's no, and there's no insoluble political problem. Uh, but the first essential ingredient is to realise the full extent of what the problem is. When the, the SNP's yeah. reputation, I mean, its loyalty, generational loyalty took thirty years and more to build up. Mm. It, it doesn't take thirty years to knock it down. now we know how much you love Hollywood sources and we are so grateful that you are there and we are so grateful to have support from our favourite hotel group, The Resident, with hotels in London and Liverpool. Now don't just take our word for how good and supportive and wonderful they are. Take this review from Louisa just a couple of months ago. She stayed in Covent Garden in London and said, Great location. Room was so comfortable and clean. Shower was the best we had. Hmm. During our month in Europe. Close to shopping and restaurants and multiple tube stations, Covent Garden is the perfect area to stay. And here's East Coast Will, who stayed at the resident earlier this year. Don't hesitate to book your stay here, especially if you're planning to attend theatre events. It's a quiet, restful oasis in a very busy city. We're excited to return. So if you're heading to London anytime soon, for politics or otherwise, and you're listening to Hollywood sources on the way, and why wouldn't you, stay at The Resident for the full London experience. To book your stay, click residenthotels.com. One of the things I get annoyed at, and I've mentioned this in a podcast before though, uh, uh, and I recognise that party leaders are not responsible for social media and other outbursts that go on, um, uh, which are pretty toxic in nature, but it is pretty toxic just now between elements of the SNP and some elected parliamentarians that should know much better than they do, and some people in Alba. Now, if I am the unionist just now, and if you're putting forward this uh, case at the next general election, surely this toxicity needs to come out of it because I'd be rubbing my hands if I'm a unionist and these guys are tearing each other apart. So there is an element just about the schoolboy element of the uh, discourse just now that needs to be rectified. Absolutely. And uh, I, uh, that's why I tried to come forward with substantial political ideas. My belief was always being if you rally people behind an idea or a concept uh, uh, or get them even debating a concept, uh, then they, they find it... Uh, 
uh, they find it easier to raise their game. You know, if, if they get into ad hominem nonsense, then uh, you, you get stuck in ad hominem nonsense. And and I don't. I mean, my message is just don't embark on it. Uh, I mean, social media, of course. Uh, you know, compared to ten years ago, yes. Jeff, when uh, we were in the front line, it's a different. It's a different vehicle now. I mean, it, you know, it accents, it accents the negative and the confrontational, and uh, and gives an impression which is perhaps beyond the. But that means all the more careful you should be. There's plenty of exciting things to talk mm. about, but it's quite interesting. I, I was. Uh, Talking to somebody earlier on today, as you probably know, guys, and here's a shameless plug for the Eyes Have It, the Eyes Have It, the sensational show at the Fringe, which involves a, a superb debating team of uh, largely uh, Scottish parliamentarians, but uh, others, but parliamentarians and celebrities who will call the goodies, uh, debating in a variety of subjects like independence, republicanism, Brexit against a team we'll call the baddies, led by David Davis and an assembled crew of Westminster heavyweight politicians. Now, all that's interesting. It'll be great fun, and people should come along, of course. It's in the big tent, the big Spiegel tent. But the interesting thing is this. I saw quite a few people <laughs> saying, you know, I shouldn't be on a platform with David Davis. You know, what are you doing being on a platform with an English Tory MP like David Davis? As if they never heard of the concept of debate, you know. <laughs> Are we now mm. to have political debates where you only debate with people you agree with or or, or disagree with on, on tactics but agree with? I mean, and I just wonder if uh, there's something... Uh, I mean, Jeff's point is it's more than just a few people calling each other names on, on Twitter. We've actually got to a stage where, the, you know, the concept of real cut and thrust political debate, the challenge of ideas, of mm. distilling uh, into a, uh, into a, 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 a condensed and vital form, uh, a, a clash of ideas has been kind of lost. Uh, so instead of getting that, what we're getting is, you know, one sentence insults thrown at each other with so many characters in them. Let me clash with an idea then, in that case. <laughs> Uh-oh. I just I was thinking, Alec, because you talked about Quebec earlier on. You talked about how parties can come and go and so on. And, and actually, the PQ, the Party Québécois, is a very good example of a party that can come and go because it's only currently got a handful of seats, two or three seats, I think, in the uh, Quebec National Assembly, having been so powerful. So parties can um, almost evaporate. It is possible. But the interesting thing I think about Quebec is that the leading party now is the Coalition Avenue Quebec CAQ with a massive majority. Mm -hmm. That is a party which was formed by former PQ cabinet minister, um, and but is no longer effectively no longer a Quebec nationalist party. It is an autonomist party. It's sort of informal catchphrases. You don't have to love Canada, but you don't have to leave it mm. either. Um, and they do very well out of that middle ground position because they've realised that's where people are. That's where they are. Now, um, I think there are a lot of similarities with. Uh, Scotland now and Quebec a few years ago um, and I think there's you know if, if Scottish politics was a market the gap in the market would not be nationalism or unionism the gap in the market would be for a party that says you don't have to love the UK but you don't have to leave it either it would be for a CAQ of Scotland um, which nobody is offering at the moment and which realistically can only be offered by Labour or indeed by the SNP. But to me, that looks like the gap. Now, we can call it Devo Max, we can call it Federalism, we can call it Devo Plus, like uh, Alec and I's old chum Ben Thompson did 
a few years ago. But whatever it is, to me, that's where people are. So there's my clash of ideas, that the very likely best outcome here for the vast majority of people would be that something in the middle option of, if we want to be very geeky about it, a kind of asymmetric federalism for Scotland, which might mean closer relationships with the single market, for instance, which might mean a variety of things that at the moment don't look possible. So deconstruct that for me, Alec. Why am I totally wrong about that? And why does it have to be full independence that's the outcome? Well, you're not totally wrong, Andy. It's a perfectly legitimate point of view. It's not one I hold to or agree to for, for the following reasons. I mean, obviously, it's very dangerous taking international examples, but I introduced Quebec into the discussion, so it's quite legitimate for you to do so. Uh, but let, let mm. and incidentally, the, the position in Quebec is much exaggerated because it's first past the post system. I mean, the, the PQ, if I remember correctly, and I'm open to correction, got 21% of the vote in the election where they only got three or four seats. You know, they knock up to high 20s, as they might well do. And then current opinion polls, and you get a transformed situation. But but nonetheless, the the analogy, if we took your analogy forward, let's say that into this you know centre ground, basically in favour of Quebec uh, autonomy, but no further. You injected another ingredient. Let let's say that the Canadian federal government had a brainstorm, and decided to either cease or make extremely difficult all North American trade. Uh, and said, right, we want nothing more to do with uh, uh, America because we don't like the restrictions on NAFTA. Uh, then, of course, that would put in, no, no Canadian government is going to have such a brainstorm. But that's roughly equivalent, to take your analogy, Andy, of the brainstorm that the body politic in the United Kingdom was consumed with. You see, I, I used to argue that if you wanted to, to see the fundamental case for independence in terms of policy from Westminster... That a few years ago, you could say, well, you know, a devolved parliament can do a whole range of things and hopefully do them better uh, than uh, a direct rule from Westminster would. Uh, but there are certain fundamental things that you had to be independent if you didn't want to engage in. And uh, I mean, an overwhelming example was the war in Iraq. Uh, now, it would be, and one of my frustrations about the last few years uh, is that Brexit has almost been used as a an incantation by the a replacement objective by the SNP to stop Brexit, as opposed to Brexit being seen as a significant, overwhelming argument for why you need independence. Uh, and I mean, I know that people think, well, well, what's the distinction? But there is a distinction. You know, it's the distinction between having on your side of the bus in the general election, you know, independence now, as opposed to stop Brexit. It's the distinction between believing and, and being arrogant enough to believe that somehow uh, if Scotland votes in a certain direction, we've got the ability to countermand uh, uh, an instruction from the English electorate, crazy though that instruction was. And it's never going to happen. I mean, I, I used to meet Andy generations of Scots Labour politicians uh, who believed that they were fundamentally intellectually superior to the Labour Party south of the border. Actually, in many cases, they were. Uh, and therefore, you know, the route was to rise to the top of the Labour Party and to and to bring the Labour Party in the United Kingdom more into line with, uh, you know, what the best of, of Scottish Labour was. I'm not talking about, you know, the sort of lumping mass of the feeble 50 Labour MPs in, in the 1990s. I'm talking about your John Smiths, your Donald Dewars, people like that. 
but of course, it mm. was an intellectual arrogance, uh, and that uh, you know, people who think, well, you know, we can we can we can, we can rub along, or we can persuade the the English that they shouldn't really have Brexited, uh, fall victim to that. So the fundamental justification of independence is that there comes along in politics with great regularity things that you know, being a even if Scotland had the most powerful devolved parliament in the world, which it doesn't, of course, but even if it did have, it just wouldn't cut it. And and right now yeah. we have a an outstanding example of that in Brexit, just as we had 20 years ago in the war in Iraq. But if Brexit is such a driver mm. then, which is fine, uh, if that is the case, then, and if rumour is to be believed, Alec, that in 2012 or thereabouts you offered David Cameron Devo Max... That would suggest to me that he was pretty daft to say no to that because it must have had a lot more currency in your view then than it does now in a post-Brexit. Well, the, the rumours are slightly wrong, Andy, just on time scale. that uh, it was 2010 that I offered uh, David Cameron Devo Max <laughs> before we won the, the majority in a proportional parliament in 2011. Uh, the, the idea of a, a freeway referendum uh, by 2012 was to... Was to, was to, I needed, if you think about a struggle with Westminster, right, I needed to persuade uh, the, the Westminster government that, that if they not denied a referendum, because that wasn't likely given the political balance, but if they tried to put unreasonable restrictions on it, like, you know, a 40% rule or a 33% rule or whatever kind of rule, you know, or alternatively tried to manage the referendum for Westminster, uh, or alternatively, uh, you know, put an unreasonable timescale on when you could hold it, uh, then I had up my sleeve a homegrown referendum, uh, which would be different from the uh, uh, from the referendum they were proposing. Uh, and also it would be a lawful referendum uh, because it would have, have had a fair chance of getting through Lady Hare's Supreme Court. Uh, incidentally, if you want if you want to go to a Supreme Court or a sort of an act of insanity, then then, then do it when a, an English liberal's in charge of the court, not when a, a Scottish Tory is. <laughs> I mean, you'll get a much 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 better <laughs> joy of an English liberal. But so the, we needed we needed to have something to do if uh, Cameron put unreasonable restrictions on the referendum, which became the referendum of 2014. So the, the first time I offered David Cameron, David Max, was to advance Scotland's position in a position where we didn't have a mandate for independence. Uh, and the second time uh, was more, more of a feint to give us a negotiating position over the referendum. I see Mr Aberdeen, who probably advised me to do these things in the first place, nodding <laughs> well, on in the years since, there's been a lot of speculation about whether you were serious about Devo Max or not. Now, you can challenge my recollection, but I remember going with you to number 10 a couple of times uh, when it was raised. And of course, when the Edinburgh Agreement was signed as well in uh, St Andrew's House uh, in Edinburgh, obviously. But my recollection is that we were giving <clears throat> Devo Max for the reasons you outline. Uh, but also because we calculated that they were pretty arrogant in their approach and that they thought, right, we'll knock this out of the park, but we'll give them something, which that something happened to be the franchise, the date, and the you know the, the, the termination mm. of the question. And I remember, <laughs> we, we, none of this was actually agreed, but do you remember we left Downing Street and you said to me, 
you said, don't look back, son, because uh, they'll reveal our big smiles. Um, because we had we had done them up like kippers, but but because that was a bit a big it was it was a ballsy call because if they had said Devo Max, I do suspect Devo Max would have carried the day quite significantly, and there'd have been further work to do for independence. But it was a tactic, as I recall. Um, and we were pretty pleased we'd come out of Downing Street with uh, exactly well, David, David, I was told not by David Cameron but I was told by one of his cabinet colleagues uh, that uh, Cameron had complained that uh, that every time I went into Downing Street I went off with the spoons but by, by which I, I don't think he literally meant I stole his cutlery <laughs> I think I think it's I don't know if you can help us. I mean, this might be, I don't know, but it's an Etonian phrase or something. <laughs> you, go off with, you go off with the silver spoons. But uh, and eventually, every time I went down to see him, he was unavoidably detained and George Osborne appeared. <laughs> so it was... <laughs> but Os- I mean, Osborne, listen, Osborne. You, you needn't have worried that they knew what they were doing, because they didn't. <laughs> I, I mean, that, that wasn't something that should have bothered you too much. I had a... I had a Oh, I don't know what the exact... I would, I would have said it was about 2012 or thereabouts. I had a conversation with uh, a Downing Street special advisor. I was I had a meeting with him on behalf of a client and then at the end I had a conversation where he asked for my view on the referendum and how it would pan out. Um, and I said, uh, well, if you, f- if, if you fight it on status quo... We were, I think at that point the unionists were about 65, 35 up or thereabouts. Um, and I said, if you fight it on status quo, you will slowly lose and lose and lose and lose sport. And you might even lose the whole thing. You probably won't, but you might even lose the whole thing. Um, and he looked at me like I had three or four heads, just not something that they really had any understanding of. They just didn't get, they didn't get what was happening in Scotland. They just didn't see it. They didn't get it. They didn't see it coming. So, I mean, I think giving any... I mean, the Tory DNA is such that devolution is defeat. That's just, it, it runs through the veins. The Tory party can't cope with further devolution because they think, it, they, they feel like that means the SNP's won and they've lost, so they can't do it. Um, and it wasn't close to their thought process at that point to give an inch. He said to me, we're going to fight this on status quo and we'll win 65-35, at which point I thought, boy, you boys are in real trouble at this point, if that's what you think. Um, and that's exactly what happened. But yeah, you needn't have worried that uh, they were going to see the smiles on your face. You would have looked at the smiles on your face and thought to themselves, "Those guys don't know." What so they're in, doing. in the case of Jeff, that was <laughs> true. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, have, I, have secret, I have the secret agenda. <laughs> Talking about losing there, Andy. Right, uh, we and and the yes proposition lost. And I really wanted to ask you this question, uh, and uh, I've never really revealed this before, but you stood down, uh, you're still First Minister, so it must have been around about October time, 2014. And yourself, me, and Duncan Hamilton, former MSP, now a a, a Casey, uh, and a good friend of yours, we, we went to have dinner together. And I came armed with... Uh, some offers that you'd received uh, and I won't go into too much detail but they were a, a visiting professorship at a, a very uh, a auspicious university in America there was a, a quite a lucrative uh, non-executive directorship of a energy company and there was uh, a chance to become on the board and a strategy position for a big sporting organization which was close to your heart now 
you said at that dinner that now I'm going to go back to Westminster. And I was absolutely gutted. And I pleaded with you the whole time not to. I'm not trying to be clever before the event, but you were walking on water at that point after the referendum. You really were. And on an international scale, uh, despite the fact we'd lost. But I couldn't believe you were going to go back. Never go back. And we had, shall we say, uh, this is a family show, a robust exchange of views. Um, now, hard, hand on heart, Alec, do you regret not taking time out pursuing other interests and then seeing where the political land might lay and come back at a time, perhaps now even, uh, without having gone through what you've gone through since that period in terms of standing in politics, losing your seat and all the rest of it and some Russia Today programmes or whatever. Uh, cheeky, I'm sorry. But do you, do you genuinely regret not taking... Well, uh, there's no percentage in, in regrets, but I'm about to give you one, but it's not that one. I mean, obviously at the time, Jeff, I, I thought there was a very good chance of a hung parliament uh, and a very good chance that the SNP would emerge. I didn't think with 56 seats, but with, you know, uh, I thought the, the SNP would have a, uh, because of the momentum that you were talking about was such that, I mean, I, you know, it took me about two hours to walk down George Street to, <laughs> with a uh, profusion of selfies. I mean, it, it, it was uh, an extraordinary Atmosphere, you know, it was the, uh, it was uh, buyers' regret or losers' regret or non-buyers' regret to the most extraordinary extent, uh, and I thought there would be a hung parliament. I, I mean, I've never, you know, put all my eggs in a hung parliament basket, but I thought, and if Ed Miliband had been, you know, anything like a political leader, it would have been hung, hung parliament still. But the, uh, but so I thought that was, uh, I thought there was an immediate advantage to. Uh, to enforce the gains that could have been made, or put the the, the gains that have been made in terms of sentiment, in terms of SNP uh, profile and power, into substantive form in the in the post referendum settlement. Let's put it that way. Uh, you know, the, the 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 genuine Smith Commission made flesh. You know, that you would uh, you would have emerged with rather more than just the Crown Estate Commission. Incidentally, the Crown Estate was actually a good thing to get, <laughs> but. Uh, if it had been used properly. Uh, but nonetheless, there, there was an opportunity. And, you know, politics is, is when you see an opportunity looming, it, you know, you want to play out the hand. I didn't say they would get hammered. So it's not taking a decision like that based on the information I had at the time. But if you're, if you're, if your question is, do, do I wake up some mornings and say, what on earth was I doing uh, standing down the day after the, the, the referendum, then... Then yeah, uh, I mean, if I had been able to see what was going to transpire, then clearly I wouldn't have done that. Uh, because not, but, you know, because of personal ambition. But you know, Scotland could have played a much, much better hand than it has over these last years. And I'm particularly anguished about the the loss of the well, quite hard won reputation for competence in government. I mean, you know, it took a fair amount of effort to, to uh, you know, to, to establish the reputation of being a competent, efficient government. And incidentally, Andy, I, I think that's the way through to, you know, people who might not agree with you in every policy, you know. And, and we were making substantial ground on people who said, well, I'm not so sure about this independence malarkey, but, you know, they know how to run the shop, you know. That's a kind of strong... Uh, a strong basis, you know. People, uh, people will forgive you a lot if you're if you're competent, uh, and they'll they'll forgive you virtually nothing if you're incompetent. 
so I, uh, I, I that any regrets would be concentrated in that. I, I sometimes say I should have woke up the uh, on the uh, on the uh, the uh, day after the September the nineteenth, uh, and uh, I should have. Uh, I should have uh, thought. Well, maybe, uh, maybe I should give this a week or so to have a, to have a think about it. I mean, I thought it was the the normal, honourable, and the planned thing I had to do. You know, that 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 in terms of shifting the the dial for for the SNP, because you know, uh, Scotland uh, likes nothing more than somebody who's been done down. <laughs> I, I get that, but my question was more directed at the, you've chosen to go down, which was honourable at the time. I think most people accepted that. Um, I, I just you, you seem to always feel you have an insatiable appetite for politics which is to be respected to a degree but your your stature was such at that point I just felt that it was a missed opportunity for you not to take a mm. step back from frontline politics let them crack on and you could have been that elder statesman of uh, the but but, but whatever, Jeff. I mean, my... you know, I'd, you know, if I wanted, uh, you know, if I, I wanted the certain boards of uh, organisations or. Uh, or whatever. I mean, you know, or what? You know, if I wanted to be the economist at the Royal Bank of Scotland, that's something I did before I was thirty. You know, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> uh, 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 if I wanted to stay in, you know, business uh, and being lucrative, then I would have done it. I, I would have probably set up the best political consultancy and strategic thinking organisation in Scotland, and cleaned out all the others and uh, and made a fortune. That, that's what I probably <laughs> real. Are you are you talking about Andy Andy or me here? Well, I, I, I thought you were in some sort of secret alliance together. I just I just I just, I just no. We will we'll, we are now though. Merger has been alleged. Listen, I, mean, I, I never. I mean, look, I I I don't I haven't enjoyed every particular aspect of my life over recent years, but I enjoy life enormously and I enjoy politics enormously. And I've been motivated, as you're well aware, for the, the best part of 50 years by the uh, the enigma, the challenge of taking Scotland to become an independent country and what then you did with that independence. You know, that has been, a, uh, you know, it's been a passion and a, a, a puzzle I wanted to see solved, and I still want to see it solved. And, you know, for all, I mean, we're talking about you know, the, the SMB and in crisis and uh, and the problems besetting Hamza Youssef and and uh, and uh, you know whether Arafat can gain seats at the next Scottish elections and all of that. But listen, whenever any of that happens, if the SNP disappears at the black hole, if Arafat booms or zooms or collapses or this happens, that happens. The the, the underlying point here is that back then, support for independence was half what it is now. And it's, it's not just back, you know, 40, 50 years ago. It, it's back mm. 10 years ago, 12 years ago, you know, uh, when we launched the referendum. I mean, I remember it very well. There was a YouGov poll that day, uh, in the day of the Edinburgh Agreement, showing independence at 29%. You know, David Cameron had every statistical reason for his uh, insouciance. <laughs> but uh, politics is not just about <laughs> statistics. And uh, the underlying the level of support for independence means still that there's there is a huge possibility and all it requires is politicians to assemble the 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 furniture in the correct fashion to take advantage of that landscape if the landscape was wrong if we were sitting having this discussion and that support for independence was still at 29 percent 
It wouldn't matter uh, if the SNP went into a dramatic new mode of, uh, of good leadership. It wouldn't matter if Alaba existed or not, because the, the background against which we'd be campaigning would not be the background which takes the country to independence. But that's not the situation. The situation is the independent supporters there and the political parties should get their act together to maximise the impact of that to take the country forward. I'm struck hearing the two of you speak, actually, and, and think back to working together. And I'm aware it's quite a rare opportunity, actually, for leader, chief of staff, to be sort of in conversation like this. Um, Jeff, you've talked before, actually, about, you know, memories of campaigning. And I think you said particularly the sort of 2007 to 2011 was electric and that the independence referendum campaign was obviously just dominated Scotland for months. It was such an engaging thing. Was it always, I don't know, what was it, what was it actually like behind the scenes? Well, you, you mentioned Kevin Pringle earlier on, and, and he is a mentor to me and, and still remains one of my close friends. And between me and him and our special guest today, there'd be enough <laughs> stories to keep us going until next Tuesday. But there's one I wouldn't mind sharing uh, that I've been wanting to share for years. Um, but I'm hoping, I'm hoping the, the, the said helicopter pilot has retired now because he's his job. Right. But uh, the background very quickly is that uh, we were... Uh, on our way from Invergordon to uh, Sky, and we had uh, myself in the front of this helicopter, uh, Alec in the back, with uh, a young man called Paul Tongieri, uh, who's a great guy, but was quite, you know, uh, a young intern at the time uh, with the party, and he had a fear of flying, oh, no. and uh, Alec was winding up on this, you know, on the uh, radio. <laughs> Uh, uh, said, oh, it looks a bit dodgy, this and all the rest of it. And then he said, oh, Jonathan, Jonathan was the name of the 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 uh, the pilot. He says, oh, the, the door's flying open. Uh, and, of course, Paul was having an absolute panic That Poor guy, very unfair. Anyway, following week, <clears throat> last week of the campaign, we're going from Kilmarnock in the helicopter again to Peebles for a campaign event with Christine Graham. And this time, I think it's just... Uh, uh, Alec, me in the front, and Alec in the back, uh, and Jonathan, this uh, helicopter pilot. And uh, uh, about halfway through the journey, I just heard on the radio tonight, uh, Jonathan, uh, the, the door actually has swung open some. Uh, we, we, had, we had to do an emergency landing in the southern uplands, the hills. I'm not joking, this is absolutely genuine. Uh, and he had to turn all the rotors off, because it was a serious safety yeah. incident. And I just remember, you know, Christine Graham trying to get in touch with me. So I said, oh, we're just on our way. He's got delayed. Um, and whilst there's these sheep coming up to us at the top of this hill, literally coming up to us today, I, looked around, I thought, unbelievable. This is ridiculous. Um, that was absolutely hilarious. And, and I suppose the second story, very briefly, was um, it was a lot of hard work, incidentally. We, we did, but it was um, the release of, of McGrahy, a very serious situation. And uh, my God, we were taking some huge incoming. And I remember Wolf Blitzer mm, from CNN, CNN uh, trying to, to, to get a hold of a Scottish minister to speak to. I remember um, a FBI director, James <laughs> Comey, um, uh, who would become famous for so many other reasons in later life. Um, was trying to get in touch with us. It was ridiculous. And, and we were really, you know, wondering if we could withstand this at this point, you know, uh, in terms of the huge pressure we're facing. Anyway, we, we got off to our beds uh, after he'd been released, got on the plane to, to Libya. And I came home and I got a phone call uh, from Alec. And he says, uh, uh, Jeff, uh, the, the, the waving salt tiles at AAA airport. <laughs> and I said, I said, fuck off, don't be so ridiculous. I haven't got time for this. <laughs> 
<laughs> Turned your telly on. And <laughs> it looked like a Scotland home game at Hamden. I'm like, oh, no. Uh, so we were uh, back in straight away into St. Rouse to try and crisis manage our way through that one, which we did okay, given that we got a majority a couple of these years later. But there was so many stories like that that we could share. It was good the- but I've nearly fallen out of a helicopter. No, 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 I was totally calm. Trying to work out, trying to work out which variety of sheep uh, it was in the in the land of mules. <laughs> but the, uh, the 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 best, the best well, one of the stories I've never told about uh, McGrahy was um, that I got a phone call from uh, the erstwhile president before he was president, of course, when he was just uh, the Donald. Uh, asking me about the situation because uh, clearly somebody had uh, asked him a comment on the matter uh, and uh, uh, he, he, I said well you know the position is that uh, we've uh, freed McGrahy on compassionate grounds the, you know, we've looked at the evidence he's got prostate cancer, he's dying I don't think it would be a good idea for him to die in the Scottish jail uh, when his appeal's outstanding against the conviction basically so it's, uh, that's why we've done it and to which Donald replied yeah but what's the deal? What's the deal? And I said, no, there's no deal, Donald. <laughs> it's with <laughs> The Donald wasn't bothered in the slightest about the freeing of, 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 of Mr. McGrahy. <laughs> what he wanted to know, what there must have been a deal, you see. <laughs> he was convinced that we wouldn't have done this unless there had been some great uh, great deal in the background. <laughs> so, yeah, there's the, the division of, uh, of thinking on such matters. But uh, as Jeff said, it was... Uh, it was an interesting and uh, turbulent period, that, but uh, it didn't do us any harm a couple of years later. Maybe it's because we, we, we actually didn't have a deal at the back then. Maybe that's why it didn't do us any harm. Gosh, it's brilliant. I love that. That is absolutely amazing. Um, do you think you'll be campaigning for an independence referendum? In I mean, in an actual campaign period against... Well, I, I think... I don't think there's... Right now, like? in politics, the... The, the way you'll definitely not get an independence referendum is to campaign for an independence referendum. Uh, you, you have to, you know, this is a, a moment to up the ante with Westminster and uh, and to uh, and to do, uh, if you don't want to do the uh, the yes alliance, the yes uh, that I'm putting forward, then, then find something else uh, to do. But you've got to change the narrative uh, for the Westminster elections because one way, when, well, let's put it this way, there are two doors uh, one way uh, may or may not lead to freedom, but the other one definitely leads to certain death. Amazing. F- really fascinating. Uh, just a final one from me as well. Um, do you think your party, do you think Alaba could benefit from, you know, the electoral campaigning prowess of somebody like Nicola Sturgeon? Which, well, you well, Nicola, I, 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 don't, I mean, party? right, Alaba, we had a conference recently, a spring conference in uh, Inverness, right? And a guy at the end of the conference came up to me and said, "You know, he said that's just like uh, that's just like an SNP conference from the nineteen nineties. Very great, really enjoyed myself." <laughs> and uh, and then he paused, and just as he was leaving, he said to me, "Of which no praise could be higher." Uh, so, you know, uh, the uh, what I could, uh, I, I think, uh, hopefully, people find the uh, the Alpa as a political party. And I, you know, because the only way Alapa can succeed is engendering that sort of uh, volunteer army, that sort of camaraderie, 
Mm. Uh, and uh, if we do that, then I think we can. We'll we'll see what the uh, the next Scottish election brings. Uh, I'm I'm pretty certain the environment there will be mm. will be uh, amenable to the Alapa message. Uh, so. Um, those who want to come on board can come on board. Let's put it that way. <laughs> All welcome. Yes, you said that. Alec, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it has been so interesting to, to speak to you. It's great to spend so much time and hear you reminiscing on all of that. So thank you very much. Thanks for joining the podcast. Not at it's all. Great. And, uh, I, I'm sorry, Andy. Clearly, I was referring to your company when I was... Uh, speaking out of turn a bit earlier on, but <laughs> Callum, Andy, and uh, the other guy, Thank you very much indeed. That is the former First Minister of Scotland, Alex Salmon, joining us on Holyrood Sources. Your reaction to what you've just heard is very, very welcome indeed. You can email us, hello at holyroodsources.com to get in touch. What do you make of it? Nicola Sturgeon would have suspended Nicola Sturgeon from the SNP, says Alex Salmon, in his first comments since the arrest of his former number two, his former deputy, and indeed former First Minister of Scotland. Your thoughts very welcome. Thank you for being with us today. We are in your podcast feed every single single week with politics analysis from those who have lived it and breathed it. Press follow to be part of Hollywood Sources and make sure you never miss an episode again. We will speak to you again next week. 